Great to see you all today. Can I just say, in addition to giving Joe envelopes with cash in, if you ever want to give me an envelope with cash in, that's always good. Always happy with that. Always happy to receive it. Well, great to see you all this morning. Good to see folks back. There's still loads of folks away with holidays, but it's good to see folks kind of drifting back in after holidays. Hope you've all had a good summer and enjoyed the break. And some of you have perhaps still got holidays to come or breaks coming, but it's good to see everybody back or people coming back uh, and coming together to worship God and just to fellowship with each other and encounter Him uh, together too. Way back in 2011, Keith and I went uh, up to the very north of Scotland and we climbed a mountain called uh, Ben Clibrek. It's a Munro, it's 3,156 feet high and it's in the middle of nowhere. Second most northerly Munro in Scotland and uh, it's right up there, there's just nothing for, uh, for miles. Here's a picture of Ben Clibrek, that's the, the kind of peak there to the uh, left of the picture. And apart from that little crofter's cottage, there was nothing for miles and miles. And, and here's Keith and I all ready to go, all togged up, ready to go for our big nine-hour epic adventure. Here's a shot of how remote it is up there. This is from the top. Just nothing for miles and miles and miles up there at all. In fact, the, w- the weather was so good, we could actually see three coasts. You could see the north coast, you could see the west coast and the east coast from up there on that particular day. It was actually the royal wedding weekend. It was when um, William and Kate got married, and we were up there um, very irreverently climbing a mountain instead of watching the telly, but anyway. And here's a shot to prove that I did make it. There was a lot of debate as to whether I would make it. Keith is uber fit, he's a mountain goer. Maybe I'm not, okay. But uh, there was a lot of debate, but, I, but that was to prove that I got there, okay. So that was me on top of Ben Klibrek uh, to prove I actually made it. We had amazing weather. Actually, the weather was probably too good. It was a bit too hot. It, in fact, it was so hot. Although we were really, really well prepared, Keith is a, you know, a seasoned mountain climber and does a lot of it, so we had all the kit that we needed. We had loads of water, but we still ran out of water. We had, we had, we had litres of the stuff. And Keith's got one of these clever things with a tube that comes up and you kind of walk along and drink it. I didn't have anything quite as, as, as cool as that. But despite that, despite all the water we had, it was so warm, we, we drank all our water. It was so hot. We carried loads of it, but by the time we were about halfway back down the mountain, that was it, the water had gone. And it was a nine-hour climb, and it was really hot, and we'd sweated, I think, every drop of moisture out of our bodies. And as we walked back down, we were absolutely parched. We were so thirsty. You know when your mouth is kind of just kind of clagged up, and you're swallowing is an effort, and oh, man, it was, it, was, it was awful. And as we did that, we began chatting about which drink we would most like to have at that moment, which was just fatal. Once we'd let the cat out of the bag, once we'd named it, it was a disaster. And we were kind of debating about which would be the most refreshing drinks. And the more we did that, the worse it got. And at the bottom of the hill, you saw that picture earlier, there was a little croft. And as we were kind of coming back down the hill and that croft got nearer and nearer, Keith said, I wonder, look, he said, if the guy in that croft, if there was anybody in there, came out, he said, with an ice cold Coke, how much would we pay him for it? And that was it. Suddenly, that's all we could think about was just an ice-cold Coke that would have been so good as we were walking down uh, or staggering down this mountain. And we both eventually reckoned that we would probably be prepared to pay 30 We were prepared to pay. We were so thirsty, and the thought of an ice-cold Coke was so appealing that day. We were so desperate for a refreshing drink. And, you know, sometimes as followers of Jesus, 
Our life situations can cause us to be desperately need, desperately in need of the spiritual equivalent of an ice-cold coat. Whether it's our own sin and disobedience, whether it's through the sins of others, things that are done to us, or whether it's things like illnesses or uh, job problems, financial struggles, relationship breakdowns, we can sometimes feel as if we're a million miles away from God's presence, a million miles away from God himself, and a million miles away from that refreshing touch which we've known in the past from God. And in the part of the Bible that we're looking at today, which is Psalms 32, sorry, Psalm 42 and 43, we find a man who was experiencing something similar in his life. We don't know who he was exactly, we don't know exactly what was happening to him, but there are a few clues in the passage which we're going to see as we go through. It seems as if he'd been part of the team that led worship back in the temple in Jerusalem. David, King David at some point had appointed this family group, the sons of Korah, to be the main kind of worship team in the temple in Jerusalem. And this was a guy who was perhaps part of that family. And for whatever reason, he was no longer able to do that. He was away from there. He'd probably been taken away by an invading army at some point in Israel's history. And he found himself living up in the northeast of Israel, a long, long way from Jerusalem right up in the, the country in the hills. And that's, that's him right up. You can see that he was on Mount Hermon. He mentions Mount Hermon in the psalm. Right up in the northeast of Israel, Jerusalem, right down the south. And he desperately wanted to be back in Jerusalem, taking part in the worship there. He was isolated from all that he loved, and he felt isolated from God. He wasn't isolated from God, but he felt isolated from God. And maybe you can identify with that today. Maybe your life right now isn't what you would like it to be, and you're really struggling. And as part of the struggles of life that you're wrestling with, you also feel that God is distant. Maybe you even feel as though God has abandoned you. Where is God? Right now, I'm just not feeling it. We're going to read Psalms 42 and 43, and we're going to see how this works out in life. And although there are actually two Psalms in the English Bible, in the original Hebrew text, they're just one Psalm. So we're going to do both Psalms this morning. They're from a collection of Psalms written by a group of men called the Sons of Korah. This was a family group that King David, around about 1000 BC, had appointed to be the, the, the guys who led the worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And one of these men wrote this psalm out of his own life experience. And over time, it became part of the collection of the 150 psalms that we have uh, in our Bible. So we're going to read Psalms 42 and 43. Ignore the, the uh, number 43, just kind of read it through. It's just one psalm in the original Hebrew. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Psalm 42, and we're going to read Psalm 42 and 43. And as, and as Rob pointed out last week, this is, the, this is the first psalm of a new section in the psalms. Uh, Rob last week dealt with Psalm 41, which was the end of book one. This is book two. This is the kind of second section. So we're going to read Psalm 42, verse 1, and right the way through to the end of Psalm 43. For the director of music, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. 
My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me, to, let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This man was living a long way from where he wanted to be. And he was cut off from the life that he used to live. And as a result of this life situation, it seemed to him as though God was a million miles away to him in his experience. And in verse 1, he likens himself to a deer that is desperate for streams of water to drink. Just as as Keith and I coming down that hill were kind of a little bit like deer, you know, coming down the the mountain and and just desperately parched and needing and, and Uh, thirsting for water so he says as the deer pants for streams of water so my soul pants for you oh god my soul thirsts for god for the living god when can i go and meet with god he's like a person who's been unable to get to church perhaps through illness or something he's desperate to go and meet with god in worship and and in praise but he's on his own he's miles away from jerusalem and he can't get there And he's an emotional mess. He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? He's up all night crying. The people around him are mocking him. He feels so utterly alone. And all he can think about is when he used to be able to go and lead worship or be part of that team there back in Jerusalem with everybody else. In verse 4 he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. This is a man who used to love being part of the worship team there in Jerusalem. He loved it, he thrived on it, but he's not able to be part of it any longer. He's physically unable to be in Jerusalem. And it seems to him as though his whole life has just fallen apart. And clearly he was struggling. He says in verse 6, My soul is downcast within me. He is really, really disheartened. And we don't know exactly what's going on in his life. We've got clues in the psalm. Maybe he was facing other unpleasant challenges as well as being unable to physically get to Jerusalem. He'd probably been forcibly removed from there. He's probably a a kind of prisoner of war, a captive. People around him are, are, are hostile to him. And life was just unpleasant all around, including some mocking, some taunting from the hostile captors that held him captive and, and the people he was forced to live amongst. And he says in verse 7, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, and breakers have swept over me. The circumstances of his life had made it seem to him that though he was like emotionally drowning, he was just kind of submerged under the emotional situations of his life. 
just like powerful waves crashing over him. Just as a man standing on a rock by the the raging sea struggles to stand under the, the sheer force and the pressure of the waves and the billows and the breakers, so this man says, It felt to him as if he was struggling to stand under the pressures of life and not get swept away. In fact, he felt like he was drowning. That's the sheer weight of his life, of his life's problems. He built his life on God. In fact, he likened God to being like a rock that he was stood on. And yet, despite being like a rock beneath his feet, he felt as though God had forgotten him. Verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? You can sense the real tension On the one hand, he believes and knows what is true about God, that God is his rock, and yet his feelings, his reality in the moment are that God has forgotten him. Say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? He's torn between these two mindsets. On the one hand, he knew God was the rock, the rock that he built his life on. But on the other hand, his current life experiences made him feel very, very different. And he knew that God was like a stronghold or a fortress, somewhere where he could go when life was tough. But his feelings, the reality of his situation, to him felt very different at that moment. In verse 2 of Psalm 43, he says, You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Again, you get this tension. You're my stronghold, but you've rejected me. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? And it seemed and it felt to this man as if God had rejected him. He was mourning the life that he lost, and he was at the mercy of the enemy that had probably captured him and enslaved him or imprisoned him in some way. He knew who God was, but his current situation, his his life circumstances felt very different. Challenged his, his core beliefs, it challenged his previous experiences of God. And in verse 10 he says, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day and long, Where is your God? This man was desperately unhappy. In fact, he was utterly miserable. And it seemed as though for him life just wasn't worth living. And it may be today that you cannot really identify with this man. Or maybe there's been instances in your life in the past where you think, yeah, that was totally me. I was there. That was how it felt for me. And maybe this morning that's how it feels for you. Through perhaps all different kind of circumstances and situations, you just feel utterly overwhelmed. Alone, rejected, abandoned. It can be all kinds of circumstances and situations that can come into our lives that can make us feel utterly miserable. And it, it can sometimes feel to us as though God is a million miles away. God is silent. God's forgotten us or, or, or maybe even rejected us. And I think that one of the things that God wants us to see in this psalm, as we read this psalm and as we read many other psalms, and in fact many other parts of the Old Testament in particular, is that God wants us to be honest and real with him. God wants us to be honest and real with him. In fact, he wants us to be honest and real with each other as well. We're great, aren't we, as Brits particularly, uh, culturally, of just everything's fine, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine, that's great. When actually inside we're falling apart. And I know we have to get on with life, but God wants us to be real with each other and honest with each other. But even more so, he wants us to be honest and real with him. You've got an outline on your seat. Write that on your notes this morning. God wants me to be honest and real with him. God wants me to be honest and real with him. The Psalms and other parts of the Old Testament are full of people pouring out their emotions to God. Sometimes they're ranting at God. 
Sometimes they're questioning God. Sometimes they're asking God to punish people. Things that kind of sit a bit awkwardly with us. And we think, well, that's a bit awkward to be in the Bible. Or, but, but actually what God has done, he's, he's, he's chosen to preserve these raw emotions of people living out genuinely what it means to follow God when life isn't always straightforward or simple. God wants us to know that it's okay to be honest with him. God wants us to know that it's okay to be honest with him. In fact, he wants us to be honest and real with him because after all, he knows what we're thinking anyway. It's crazy, isn't it, to come to God in prayer and you know, put on this kind of front and mask and pretend everything's good when God knows every individual single thought. Even before we have those thoughts, God knows the thoughts that we're about to have. And every word before we speak them, he knows those things. So it's a little bit futile, a little bit pointless for us to try and hide those emotions when we come into God's presence because he knows them all. He wants us to be honest and real with him. Yes, he wants us to be reverent, utterly reverent. He's a consuming fire. But he also wants us to be honest and real with him. And he wants us to be honest and real with each other too. It's no good pretending to God. He knows every thought before we even have it. So it's so important that we're honest with him. And one of the things that the, that the Psalms show us is that whilst we mustn't let our emotions rule our lives, that's really important that our emotions don't rule our lives, God has nevertheless created us as emotional beings. Jesus cried. Jesus got angry. You know, the Jesus that we often have in our minds, and certainly the world has in its minds, is this kind of meek and gentle Jesus who went around just saying nice things to people. He did say nice things to people, but he also said some really tough, harsh things. And he also got a whip, and he drove out people with a whip, and he turned out, this, this isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He had raw emotions. Jesus got angry. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. He never sinned. But Jesus was the most fully human being that has ever lived. If you want to see real humanity, we look at Jesus. Jesus is the most fully human being that has ever lived. And Jesus was an emotional being. Emotions are part of what it means to be truly human. And with our cultural kind of glasses that we put on as Brits, we're not all Brits perhaps here today, but lots of us are, with those cultural glasses we tend to subdue those things. It's stiff upper lip and it's not the done thing and all that kind of stuff. And we're creatures of our culture, and that's fine. I, I get that. But to be an emotional person is to be a human being. And we subdue our emotions at times at, at a great risk to ourselves. Jesus let his emotions out, and he was the most truly human being that has ever lived. We have been created in God's image, and so when we feel and experience emotions, we're experiencing part of what it is to reflect God, part of what that means to be made in his image. And that means that our worship and our prayer lives and our relationship with God needs to be real and authentic. Whether it's in private or even in public, God wants us to engage our emotions. Now, I know that most of us are here are British, as I was saying, and we're creatures of our culture, I get that. But nevertheless, we need to allow our emotions to play a fuller part in our relationship with God. Sometimes in public worship, for instance, we're more concerned with what people around us are thinking about how we perhaps are, are, are expressing ourselves than we really are with connecting with God. When we suppress and subdue our heart emotions, that's not being who God has really created us to be. 
Or we're being as British. We're not really being those emotional beings. Now, we're not going to be driven by our emotions. We don't want our worship times to be driven by emotion. That's an excess. But to be those people who are emotional beings that God has created us to be and to engage with him, driven, uh, not driven, but engage with him from the heart of our, of our beings. God wants us to be real and honest with him in private and in public. It's amazing how when we go to a football game, we can scream and shout and get really excited. But then when we come to church, oh, that's not really me. We don't get so excited about worshipping God, and yet we can get really excited about a guy running with a ball or or carrying a ball or whatever. We just need to think through some of those things sometimes. One of the challenges this man faced was living out his relationship with God on his own. It, It seems that he was the only person around or certainly the only person he knew or was with that was a believer in God that was a worshiper of God he was miles away from Jerusalem he was right up near Mount Hermon in the northeast of Israel and so he couldn't take part in temple worship the distance made that impossible it was just him and God but it seems as though in his mind he confused the experience and the fun and the joy of worshiping God with other people he he confused that with the joy of of worshiping God himself he confused the, the experience of worship with the, with the actual joy of God. And those two things are different. He understandably felt great loss at not being able to worship in Jerusalem with other people. But he had to learn that whilst that was really important, his relationship with God was bigger than whether or not he could be in Jerusalem. His relationship with God was bigger than whether he could take part in this great crowd of worshippers in Jerusalem. And that's the lesson each one of us need to learn. God has created the church partly so that we can get together like we are this morning with other Christians and be encouraged as we worship together, as we learn, and as we serve together. And that is all massively important. But if we're not careful, the experience of church life or the high of a church service or the emotions of a camp or of a mission team, that can become the thing we focus on rather than God himself. Now, don't get me wrong, all those things are hugely important. They're great things. They're so important. We need church. We need each other. We need fellowship. And we can be mightily blessed when we worship together, when we serve together. God's plan is that we live out our faith. We live out our, our, our following Jesus in a community of faith, in a church. That, that, that's God's plan. We're not designed or meant to do this on our own. And if we try and do it on our own, it won't end well. That is not God's plan for us. We should be at church on Sundays. We should get involved in our home group. We should gather together to worship with other believers. We should serve together. But sometimes, and it's very subtle, but sometimes we can end up valuing those things more than we actually value God. We can end up valuing those things more than we actually value God. We can end up enjoying the stuff associated with God rather than actually enjoying God himself. And and sometimes God will take us into situations where we find ourselves on our own or or separated from things or people that we value or rely on, just like this man. And the reason God sometimes does this is so that we learn to rely on him and focus on him and enjoying him rather than on things that are linked to him. And it seems to me that this man was, was more focused on being part of the worship team back there in Jerusalem than he actually was on God himself and on worshiping God. And so God allowed him to be taken away from that which he loved and prized, which was being involved in leading worship in the temple. 
so that he would learn to love and prize God himself above the act of leading worship. Leading worship, being involved in worship in a, in a group, that's really important. But this man had to learn that God was greater than the act of worship or being part of a team of worshiping. See, it's possible for us to be deceived into thinking that when we serve God in some way, that we're putting God first, and that may be true. To put God first in our lives will, will mean that we begin to serve God. But sometimes we can end up worshipping the thing we do for God rather than God himself. Do you get the point I'm making? We can end up worshipping the thing we do for God rather than actually worshipping God himself. And sometimes God will allow things that are precious to us to be taken away so that we focus on him and him alone. That might be a ministry. That might be something we do in church. It might be a person. Something or someone that we hold more valuable, more precious to us than we do God. Because ultimately that's idolatry. Whenever we value or, or raise something or someone up in, in the place of God, without even perhaps sometimes realizing that, that is idolatry. And God hates idolatry. Sometimes God will allow those things that are precious to us to be taken away so that we focus on him and him alone rather than on on other things, no matter how good those things may be in and of themselves. This man had to learn that God alone was enough for him. God alone was enough for him. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? Is God enough for me? Is God alone enough for me? If all the other stuff is stripped away, is God alone enough for me? He is, but we don't always believe that. And as tough as it was, he could still worship God, he could still be in relationship with God, he could still enjoy God, even though he was miles away from Jerusalem. And this man came through this period of spiritual dryness, of being disheartened, this this sense of drowning by making right choices. Look at verse 5, he says this, Why are you downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And he says this three times. Throughout this psalm, he comes back again and again and says this same thing over and over again. He speaks to himself. He rebukes himself. He challenges himself. He gets a hold of himself. Kind of like, you know, he's sort of slapping himself around. The, I, I feel horrendous, but slap. I'm still going to choose God. He rebukes himself and he gets back in the zone. He makes a choice to put his hope in God and to praise God. Even though his world is a mess, he doesn't feel much like doing this, but he makes the choice to do it. And we see this again in verse 6 where he says, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. My soul is downcast, and so for that very reason I'm going to choose to focus on you, O God. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Miser. He's downcast, but he makes the choice to focus on God. He says, therefore I will remember you. He makes a conscious choice to keep on focusing on God and to keep on trusting God. His feelings are telling him the very opposite. His soul is downcast, but despite his feelings, he chooses to act upon what he knows is true. And in fact, it's because he feels so terrible that he knows he needs to choose to remember God and focus upon God. And you know, the Christian life, write this down on your outline, the Christian life is about making right choices based upon what we know is true rather than how we feel. The Christian life is about making right choices based upon what we know is true rather than how we feel. Just think about that for a moment. 
Our feelings and our emotions are very real. God has created us as emotional beings. God's given them to us. But because of sin, our feelings and our emotions are unreliable. We mustn't ignore them. Our emotions are you know, a bit like physical pain. If you get a physical pain, it's, it's a warning sign that you're doing something bad for yourself. And our emotions are the same. They're a warning sign to us. We need to take notice of them. But they can be misleading. Our emotions, our feelings can be misleading. And so we need to make right choices based upon what we know is true. What we know is true about God, what we know is true about us, what we know is true about life, rather than on our feelings because our emotions come and go. I don't know about you, but throughout the course of a day, my emotions can go from the highest of heights to the depths and back up again, all based on what someone says to me or the weather or whether Newcastle Falcons got beat on Friday or, you know, your emotions can go all over the place just on a few circumstances. So they're unreliable. They're, a, they're, a, they're an indicator to us, but they're unreliable. And so part of the, the role of a follower of Jesus is to find out what is true. True about God, true about us, true about life, and then choose to believe it. How do we find out what's true? How do we find out what the truth is, God's unchanging eternal truth? We do that through reading the Bible, because God's word is truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it's when we find the truth, the truth of God in his word, that we are set free. And as we read the Bible, we discover what's true about God. We discover what's true about us. We discover what's true about life. And then we can base our decision-making upon that truth and not upon our feelings or our emotions. We, we take notice of our feelings and emotions. God wants us to engage with those things, but we don't run our lives based upon them. You see, we don't feel our way into good behavior. We behave our way into good feelings. Let me repeat that. We don't feel our way into good behavior. We behave our way into good feelings. Following our feelings will often lead us into bad behavior. Because our feelings are unreliable, they're tainted by sin, and they can often lead us into paths and down into directions which are unhelpful and wrong and ultimately can be sinful. And if we wait until our, our feelings, or if we wait until we feel like doing something, we may never get around to it. We may know what is right and what is true and what we should do, but we just don't really feel like doing that. And if we wait until our feelings fall into line, we'll never get around to doing it. Whereas if we make the choice to do what is right because the truth is that this is what I should do, our feelings will then catch up with the choices we make. Let me give you an example from marriage. Now, I know that you might find this really hard to believe, but sometimes a married man may wake up in the morning and he may not always feel like being married. I'm sure that there's no married man here who ever felt that way, but sometimes a married man may wake up in the morning and he may not always feel like being married. That may happen to a married woman too. He may not always feel like doing all the things he should do within his marriage. He may not feel like loving his wife sacrificially as Jesus loved the church. He may not feel like taking the spiritual lead in his home as he should do. He may not even feel like being sexually faithful. All the things that the Bible says a married man should do, because they're the truth, so we do them. And if a married man follows his feelings, well, I don't feel like doing that today, I don't feel like this, I don't feel like that. If we follow our feelings, it will end up with disaster for our marriage. 
or at the very least will bring damage to a marriage, and a marriage won't be what it could be. Whereas if despite how that man feels when he begins his day, he reminds himself of the truth, I've made vows that are based on God's word, and that God wants me to sacrificially love my wife like Jesus loves the church. And that God wants me to be the spiritual leader in my marriage and in my home and my family. And that God wants me to be sexually faithful to my wife. All of these things which are the truth. And if, we, if the married man reminds himself of those truths and then chooses to live according to those truths rather than his feelings, then he will have a good marriage. And he will often and usually find that his feelings, which come and go like the wind, will then fall into line as he chooses to build his life on truth rather than feelings. So we don't feel our way into good behavior. We behave our way into good feelings. Our feelings will follow our behavior. So we need to find out what's true by reading the Bible on a daily basis and then making the daily choice to build our lives on truth rather than on feelings. And that's ultimately what this man did in this psalm. He went back to what was true over and over again. His his life was all over the place. His emotions were a rage, but he went back to the truth over and over again and he chose to worship and trust God despite his situation and despite his feelings I wonder what God is saying to you this morning is he calling you to be more real and honest with him as you follow him day by day in, in your own prayer times in your own reading of the Bible is he challenging you to do that to let your emotions out as you engage with God, to be real. Is is God calling on you this morning to focus more on him, to focus on him alone, rather than on the things associated with God, no matter how good and how godly those things might be? Is he teaching you that God is enough, he alone is sufficient for you? Maybe God is calling you to focus on his truth and make right choices based upon those truths, so that your life isn't driven by your emotions and your feelings. Let's just take a few moments to pause and reflect in silence on what God is saying to us this morning. And maybe you receive something from God completely different to that, but whatever the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning, let's just bow our heads, close our eyes, if, if you find that helpful, and just reflect on what, what is God saying to me this morning? What is God gently calling to me to do? What are, the, what are the changes? What are the things I'm hearing? What, are, what is God saying to me? What are the steps he wants me to take? Let's just have a moment of quiet and reflect on that. I'm going to listen to a song. It's going to be up on the screen as well for us by Torrin Wells called Hills and Valleys. And after the song is finished, Joel's going to come back up and lead us in communion together. But just as we continue in a a kind of heart of worship, let's um, just really engage with God. If God is continuing to speak to you as we listen to this song, beautifully sung, great words, just to engage with God. Uh, And if God is speaking to you today, then do business with him, uh, I pray today. Thanks.